film stock is harder to get uh, these days. We are a very, very large consumer of black and white uh, film stock, but we've, uh, you know, we have plenty of people there who know how to do that work. We have a staff chemist, and we're, you know, going to continue to to preserve things on film, but we're a lot more selective about it now. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. There's a lot of film to be preserved, and the more people think about it, the more there is. We talked to Dan Striebel about a symposium devoted to orphan film coming in April. And we talked with Mike Machan, who made preservation decisions at the Library of Congress for two decades. Don't let an episode of this podcast go without a home in your home. Subscribe so you never miss an episode, and leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. Gone with the Wind, Casablanca. Beach Blanket Bingo, The Mole People. All films that have owners, corporate parents who see them as having value and being something you want to preserve. They're the 10% of the iceberg that's above water. Then there's orphan films, any kind of film that doesn't have a corporation caring for it. Industrial, educational, avant-garde, newsreels, all kinds of things from every era of film. A vast field whose territory is still often unexplored. Orphan films have increasingly become a focus for archivists and people studying film. The Orphan Film Symposium has been bringing scholars together to consider these films and what they can tell us about our world for a quarter century. Dan Striebel, Associate Professor and Director of the Moving Image Archiving and Preservations Program in the Department of Cinema Studies at New York University, runs the Orphan Film Symposium, which will have its next event in April in New York City. I spoke with Professor Striebel from New York and started by asking him to define orphan film for us. Orphan film, as a specific term, has been around in the vernacular, I would say, for decades. But in the 1990s, it became part of the official discourse of film preservation, mostly through um, US law and a report from the Librarian of Congress about film preservation. And they invoked the term orphan film, though at that point, people were still using it informally to refer to films uh, whose rights owners had abandoned them. That's the shortest uh, legal definition. And now there's actually, it's used in case law, it's used in other legislation, mostly about copyright and things outside of copyright or things are in copyright limbo. So that's one category of orphan film. But by the time I 
uh, became aware of the term in 1999. It had already become, this, I'll call it the new governing metaphor for how film preservationists talked about problematic parts of their work, especially people who worked in archives. Um, but it was of concern to people who don't work in archives too, filmmakers, heirs of filmmakers, researchers who find stuff, but they don't know, you know, what, what its origins are, unidentified material. And at that point the, in the United States, uh, the National Film Preservation Foundation had been launched and their mission was to provide funding uh, to archives to preserve orphan films. They don't usually now invoke the term as often, but they, by that time, were already using the term as, as I use it and as the community of people who participate use it, which is to say all the varieties of neglected films, films that do not have any commercial potential and therefore fall at risk of not getting preserved. Um, so originally it was an archive. We have a film, but we don't know who owns the rights, so we can't preserve it yet because it's too much money to invest in an unknown. Uh, now that problem is not so much at issue. The problem is now there's such a large quantity of neglected categories. So usually when someone defines orphan films, you have to come up with a kind of a laundry list of what those are. So I, I began the work by becoming familiar with uh, newsreel outtakes especially ones on nitrate film, which were not being uh, preserved rapidly enough, uh, specifically at the Fox Movie Tone News Collection at the University of South Carolina, which is where I was teaching uh, at the time. So we could say newsreels, outtakes, avant-garde works, home movies, um, scientific films, test films, surveillance films, medical films, um, Films that were never released, films which were made but never distributed. Uh, it's quite a long list of, of things, you know, independent documentaries, ethnographic films, etc. And you know, as time passes, because most of those films were ephemeral in nature, which is to say they were made at a certain point in time for a certain purpose, and then after X number of years, that purpose is no longer part of the active conversation. So they don't get revived as pieces of cinema, um, but they're film artifacts. And what I found when we started doing the Orphan Film Symposium in 1999 is that when people gathered together, archivists, scholars, artists, enthusiasts, cinephiles, and we actually watched these oddball films, um, people took great delight and interest in seeing these things they'd never seen before. Uh, Many of, them, many of them were not made for commercial distribution anyway. Um, so the variety and the kind of kind, constant sense of discovery is what I think keeps a lot of people interested in the broad category of orphan film. If we're talking really not like narrative feature films, which sort of is the de facto standard idea of what films worth studying are. This kind of isn't really so much a matter of like film study as it's sort of sociology or political science or something like that. Uh, I think you're right. The de facto assumption is if you're going to talk about films or film history, you're talking about feature length narrative work, which was made for theatrical distribution or broadcast or whatever. Uh, but those films, have better caretakers and they have rights owners 
like studios and corporations who have the resources to take care of their own assets. It's the everything else-ness about it, the variety. And as you say, sometimes you're not interested in a recording, let's say um, a training film from 1920 made in Germany. You're not interested in it as a work of cinema. You're interested in it because of what it reveals about the past and about a specific place and time. And the person who probably could best draw out the interesting aspects of that is not necessarily a, a film person or a film scholar. Could be, a, as you say, a sociologist or a general historian or a language expert or a labor historian, all varieties. And that's one of the nice things about gathering people together and watching a variety of material is that people come with much different expertises and learn a lot from each other. So it's um, part of the challenge of how to present them and how to get conversation going around them. But it's also the, the pleasurable part of it. It's, I used to say, hyper interdisciplinary people from lots of different fields, everything from scientists and physicists to people that study you know, poetry and language, for example. Yeah, no, I was I was trying to think about, you know, what would you study in films like this? And I was thinking about Master Hands, which is a fairly famous industrial film from the 1930s. And I mean, it, it is quite beautifully done. So somebody has seen his Eisenstein before making this movie. But also, I mean, there's a whole kind of subtext to it, which is that it's opposing unionization. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, sort of depicting the workers as these artisan craftsmen who have no need for a union, which would deny their individuality or, you know, whatever it's sort of suggesting. And, you know, yep. there's there's two different ways of looking at this film, you know, potentially coming together in the same room and, you know, contemplating, you know, what what is this movie really about? Yeah, you know, Master Hans is a good example. It's one which... On the one hand, you say, well, it's not orphans because we know who made it. It was copyrighted and it's been preserved and it has now become available and familiar. But that was not always so. Most people know that it's uh, Rick Pralinger, the collector, archivist, scholar, I'll call him public intellectual, who was responsible for getting discussion going about lots of those types of films, that being one of the more exceptional ones, exceptional in terms of a complete work with a highly uh, cinematic sense of artistry. Um, but you're right. We can, you could watch it and appreciate the artistry of the filmmaking and of the people being depicted as artisans. Uh, but it would be a mistake to let that be uh, the only thing or, or the main thing that you talked about because it was made, as you say, in the midst of uh, quite uh, intense uh, labor management debates and even violence uh, that was going on in the automobile manufacturing industry in the 1930s. Um, so you, one would have to and want to understand what General Motors' view on this was and uh, what the role and what the nature of the work was for people, the workers on the line who were doing the work. And you, so you have to accept the fact that you don't know those things uh, when you're watching the film itself. Right. And that General Motors and Ford and lots of other, most, most big corporations in the U.S. had major film production operations in that, in that time, 30s, 40s, 50s. And um, in most of what they made were for targeted audiences. Some films made just for people who ran automobile dealerships and had to sell new models and automobiles. Others were 
public made for public consumption to persuade people uh, that cars were good and that every consumer should have one and yeah. <laughs> that the brand is better than the other. So some of them are just hard sell advertising films. Most of them though are more soft sell. Um, I, I was reading a coincidence last night uh, about a, a silent film star, uh, Cullen Ellis. No, his name's not coming to Colin me correctly. Landis. But yeah, yeah, Colin Landis, exactly. Who was a silent movie star, made you know eighty or a hundred films, and he was—he's the star of the first all-talky film, *The Lights of New York* of 1928. And two years later, he left Hollywood and he moved to Detroit to work in this film industry, this other film industry we're talking about, to make industrial films and advertising films for Ford and General Motors and Coca-Cola film he made for the World's Fair of 39. And then in the war, he made training films for the Signal Corps. And then afterwards, he made films for the State Department. So we might say his most significant film contributions were these dozens of mostly documentary-ish kinds of films that were widely seen in their time by the audiences who were supposed to see them. But there's not a filmography uh, of all that work. There's a complete filmography of all the films that he appeared in as an actor in the teens and 20s. Um, but it may be a bit unusual that someone who had sway in the Hollywood industry just up and left to go to the alternative industry. But that's that's the kind of film history that is getting rewritten as we rediscover uh, the quantity of such films that were made. Right. And so far, you and I have just been talking about American films, but of course, it's a worldwide sure. phenomenon. And uh, what I discovered pretty early on was that other nations were using the same metaphor informally, uh, even like I met a film archivist from Cuba uh, in the late uh, 20th century. And he said, oh, no, we use, we use the word huerfano to talk about these uh, you know, neglected films of the past. Now the European Union has legislation about orphan films very specifically that talk about what archives and citizens can do to determine whether or not their film is under some rights restrictions or whether it's public domain or is it somewhere in between? Is it an orphan? Speaking of it as a, as a thing that brings people together somewhat internationally to talk about this, you've got the Orphan Film Symposium coming up in a couple of months. Tell me about that. Yeah, the Orphan Film Symposium, uh, the 14th biannual edition, uh, will be in New York, April 10 through 13 this year. Um, the location will be Museum of the Moving Image in Queens. It's the third time that we have done it. Uh, symposium is the production of New York University, where I teach uh, NYU Tisch School of the Arts and our Cinema Studies Department. And it's master's program in moving image archiving and preservation. So that's a mouthful, but let's just say NYU for the <laughs> sake of it. Uh, so the way that it works is every other year, uh, we put out a call for proposals and people, and we announce a theme. This year, the theme is work and play. I guess that's two themes, isn't it? Um, <laughs> maybe a, a, a few things that we're going to show or present at the symposium will be things that we've been working on internally for a couple of years and we want to showcase them, but mostly it is presentations by people who submitted uh, a proposal to this open call. Uh, and then I, and my colleagues 
vet them um, and choose as many as we can to fit within our time frame. Uh, so this one, for example, well, I should say that every symposium since the first one in 1999 um, has followed the same template, uh, kind of opening night, uh, fun, entertaining presentation of some, sometimes a new film using archival material, and then three full days and evenings of presentations in a variety of different formats, but most of which feature the screening of uh, some neglected film that most people in the audience will not know anything about or only know a little bit about. Uh, and then each evening about eight o'clock, we, after dinner together, we um, screen a program of short films, but much more emphasis on just the screening at length and not so much uh, talking uh, at length about the preservation process or about the historical significance. And it, it has become more and more international, especially when we moved the event from the University of South Carolina, where it was born and where it took place for nine years until New York University adopted uh, the program and my work to come into cinema studies departments at NYU. Uh, New York easier to fly to, so we have great participation uh, from across Latin America and Western Europe, but branch out into other parts of the world this year, uh, this time, like each time. Uh, so see material from Taiwan, Mexico, um, Argentina, Uruguay, Ecuador, um, and, and several Western European nations. Um, a film shot in West Africa by an archaeologist in 1970, all kinds of uh, things. Heavy Canadian participation, too, since um, the 2022 symposium was hosted in Montreal by Concordia University. We've also had the event uh, in Amsterdam at the Eiffel Museum. Uh, the other thing the symposium does is in the off years, every other year, um, we usually do some kind of shorter event, um, still pretty major productions, but two day events, day and a half, uh, even three day events at other sites. So Austrian Film Museum, um, Cinematheque Francaise in Paris, UCLA Academy, uh, Film Archive and Museum in Los Angeles. Um, so it's a year-round effort, production, planning, uh, but the symposium itself is mostly thought of as this biannual culminating event. So it's intense four days, let's say 75 or so speakers and uh, as many, uh, a like number of films. So almost everything we show is short in nature maybe one feature film every year, but um, that's to live up to the diversity to try to present the audience with as eclectic and diverse and broad set of materials as possible. But the short films tend to be the, uh, the lingua franca of what we do. There's a certain amount of skepticism about the value of these, you know, many of these orphan films that have a commercial or, orientation or they're you know basically somebody's amateur uh you know art film but uh i don't know what do you th where do you see the the value and where do these films go after this kind of discovery mm -hmm. no it's a good question um the value certainly is not obvious to most people who don't already have some expertise in whatever that particular film is uh, but I think, uh, you know, it is the 
scholars and historians, not necessarily professional, you know, academics, could be independent researchers or, you know, fans with intense knowledge of something because they're fans, uh, can tell us what we can't see on the screen. And the archivist's job is to advocate for the preservation of their collection and of particular works in the collection. Um, so part of it is also explaining now, this film is rare and unknown and might not strike you as uh, a great work of cinema when you see it. But as the archivist, I can explain how this film came to survive against great odds and how it's an example of something you would never have guessed existed on film. Um, another place that's uh, the symposium uh, or films at the symposium come from are newsreel collections. Um, especially the outtakes. So starting in the teens and until the 1970s, you know, most movie theater going experience involved seeing an eight or 10 minute newsreel. That was just an expectation. Um, so companies, major and minor, but mostly major studio connected enterprises went all over the world uh, sh recording film. And most of the, what they shot was not used in the theatrical newsreel releases. Most of what they shot stayed in the outtake uh, bin. And while a lot of that material has not been preserved and might not ever be recovered, a lot, tens of thousands of uh, feet of film, thousands of hours of such film do survive and are preserved. Um, University of South Carolina's Fox Movie Tone News Collection is the one that inspired me and was the basis for the symposium. The UCLA Film and Television Archive has uh, an even larger collection of most of which is from the so-called Hearst collection, Hearst Metrotone or News of the Day, which was owned by MGM. Uh, an exciting new thing has happened. They have just this past year launched a website, uh, newsreels.net, and they put high quality scans, uh, streaming of thousands of these films. They've only got, I think the estimate is about 20% of the collection is online now. The others forthcoming, uh, but you, it's easy to search by keyword or by date. It'll show you the film itself. It'll show you theatrical cuts if it survives. It'll show you um, archival paper documents that are associated with the film in its original format. Um, so it's quite exciting to see. And, it, you know, it covers the time. Most of their stuff is from the sound period. So 1930 till the 1970 is the strength of that collection. Uh, but some silent film material as well. So there's never been a better time for people at large to have access to what used to be very difficult to see material. Um, you know, there are other large collections um, in most nations of the world, there's a newsreel collection in, in the National Archive or some archive. So what what would qualify as, as a discovery or the sensation of the festival or something like that? You know, what do people go away uh, talking about and possibly humming the tune from? Uh, um, a good question. Okay, I'll, I'll just take one example from last, last time around. Um, in Montreal, there was a consortial efforts among scholars, archivists, and artists to work with a wide, wide category of 
not necessarily orphans, but neglected, lesser known material. Um, and one of the filmmakers who was working on a kind of biographical account of an actress who had appeared in one film in the early 1960s uh, featuring a Canadian Caribbean uh, black actress not known outside of uh, the, the short-lived fame she had in Canada. While we were preparing for that uh, talk, the part, participating partner at the Smithsonian Institution, National Museum of African American History and Culture, said, oh, we have a documentary, not a doc, yeah, a documentary, a short film in our collection uh, called the Jojolo, uh, which turned out to be the actress's nickname. And this almost experimental-like, but a kind of verite portrait film, 15 minutes long, of uh, this woman, some years later, in Paris, talking to the camera, on camera, walking around, uh, and they had just acquired it through a private collection, and they had just scanned it, and so we were able to watch it, Jojolo by name, and it was like the definitive representation of who this person was, the artist working on the new documentary about her was all she had was this uh, one Canadian film. She had no idea, as no one else did, that this film had been made later in France um, and that it was a complete depiction of her. Uh, so it was a kind of revelation. It also is a wonderful film. It's not yet available to the public, but soon the National Museum of African American History and Culture will have it preserved and make it available. I'm sure it will start to be screened because it's a it's a fun, breezy, entertaining film, as well as something that asks provocative questions, you know, what it was like to be a black woman in Paris in the mid-1960s. Anything that you're particularly interested in coming up at the at the next uh, symposium? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> One thing I noticed uh, this time around that we have, not through pre-planning, but still the strongest proposals, um, were involved... Uh, Amateur films, okay. Not some of them are home movies in the classic sense of you know an unedited, spontaneous, uh, unartistically recording of some incidents in family life. But amateur films in the um, other sense of the term, that is, people who were not professional filmmakers, but who aspired to be good uh, makers of film as a hobby, as an aspiration, but never intending them to have. Uh, you know, not a ticket to a professional career, just right. doing it for the pleasure and the joy of it. So we have uh, two such films from Cuba, which were uh, discovered uh, by a group of colleagues, uh, literally in, I think, literally in trash bins. In any case, they were not archival films. They were rescued from destruction by a collective of four, um, two of whom were going to film preservation curating school in Spain. Um, and so they preserved the work of two filmmakers who worked together in Cuba as amateurs. And in 1998, they each made two separate films on the same day. Uh, those films survive. The soundtrack is lost. So the presentation will involve not only explication of what we're watching, but also try to fill in how, how do you how do you present such work when the sound is lost and not likely to be recovered? So do you provide music? Do you re-record narration? Do you try to imagine what the soundtrack might have been? 
Um, it's another challenge of presenting films in these fragmentary states. Jim Henson, Muppeteer, um, long career, working in lots of modes of cinema, uh, not just the theatrical and television programs that we know. Um, he left a, a big archive, but it's also very well taken care of, non-orphaned, let's say, um, through both the uh, company, but also a, a non-profit uh, preservation-oriented part of it. Uh, so Karen Falk and Craig Shemin are the keepers of the collection who work on its preservation, and uh, they will uh, make a selection of short films, playful, since our theme is play, uh, and present 30 or 40 minutes of them uh, in a single setting uh, during the symposium. Uh, they did this at the symposium uh, six years ago, and it was a hit, let's say, with the revelations about things we might not have imagined, the creative, expansive mind that Jim Henson had and the different modes of cinema he worked in, you know, not just children's television programming and feature films, uh, but animation and training films and comic shorts, all kinds of things. Um, two other things I would point to as, as highlights are both uh, have Asian source material. Um, a scholar named Eric Faden uh, has been working with uh, Japanese colleagues in Japan, collecting and assembling uh, films made in Japan in the 1930s and 40s uh, on paper. Now, some people who know film history know that early, the earliest films often survived because they were printed on paper simply to be made copyright deposit, not to right. be watched on paper. But these are examples of an obsolescent, obscure technology that I still don't fully understand, <laughs> in which these color films, animated films, were literally originally produced on paper and then also projected in a way uh, that Eric Faden and his colleagues are going to explain. And so they have a sampling of, it's, it's a new project, a new restoration of this material. Uh, so they're from the 30s and 40s and first time they've been seen beyond, you know, maybe a small museum setting or something like that. Uh, the other one is uh, from China, PhD uh, candidate at NYU, they were listening, uh, and Zhang is working with, um, I'll say, uh, the punk rock star of the film archiving world, Dino Everett, who's <laughs> uh, at the University of Southern California, in charge of their uh, moving image archive. So they're going to be screening a little known film format that was used only in China um, in the 70s and 80s, I guess is the broad category there. What makes them unique is their film format. Instead of 16 millimeter or eight millimeter, these were 8.75 millimeter film prints made, uh, made in that narrow gauge to be cheaper to do more portable, um, cheaper, cheaper to mass produce as well. But obviously you need an 8.75 millimeter projector to make them work and their sound films as well. Um, the two that they're gonna show, one is a, a news, Chinese news film of sorts, the other is an animation, actually a feature length animation. Um, this small gauge was made to be portable and was mostly used in rural or remote areas of China that didn't have movie theaters. Um, 
many of the films were made for educational purposes or um, propaganda films, I guess, to some degree, you could say, but they're from many different uh, genres. So I've never seen one of these films projected. I've never, I've seen, I think, a couple that have been scanned uh, as digital objects, uh, but they're going to present the films, talk about the, the use of the technology, and then actually show them with an 8.75 millimeter projector, which Gino Everett has re renovated from, uh, they came from China. Um, and so we'll watch them. The projector will be a little handheld thing in the in the auditorium instead of coming from the projection booth. So that's another part of it, a performative aspect of presenting the films. Right. Um, which is quite thrilling. Ultimately, what do you want to see come out of out of this symposium? Well, then what, what usually happens um, and what uh, expect to happen is over time, uh, well, from the origins, uh, participants, whether they were presenting or just attending to watch and listen, uh, came away with uh, a kind of, you know, energetic sense of excitement and rediscovery and camaraderie, I guess. So one thing that happens is uh, because people come from various professional backgrounds and from various places, Inevitably, there are relationships struck up or new projects get brainstormed or someone says, oh, you're looking for that. We have a copy of that here, blah, blah, blah. So uh, more research will be rewarded, uh, creative efforts in filmmaking for people that are looking for um, archival material to illustrate a historical documentary they're making or have a, a more avant-garde sensibility to make a compilation of uh, material uh, born in the film world of the past. Um, that's one thing that happens. The other is that, you know, the the germ of something gets presented for the first time and maybe a film gets seen for the first time and then interest grows. Someone else wants to show it and then it gets uh, further treatment and maybe bigger restoration. And then two years later, uh, whoever presented that film, whether it's an archive or an artist, um, we'll have a new audience for it that starts with this concerted uh, smallish audience that attends the symposium. If somebody hears this and they think, wow, this is so cool. This is just a thing for me. Can they go to this event? Yes. It's open to anyone in the world who wants to can uh, attend. Um, you have to register online. So the website's easy to find to find if you just look for orphan film symposium or nyu.edu slash orphan film. Uh, the website is there and it has instructions on how to register. There are kind of two forms of registration. Uh, if you want the whole package experience, four days and be able to, to dine together throughout the event with the other attendees, um, because it's a catered event where we feed people lunch and coffee breaks and all that, um, the registration is $250 for the four days or half price if you are a student or just want to declare yourself underemployed. We don't ask questions. You can pay half price. Um, for locals who want to come just to one session or one presentation or one an evening screening, uh, there'll be instructions there on how to sign up to get um, tickets either at no cost or low cost. Okay. But the core, core of the participants will be 75 or 80 people who are appearing on the mic at, on the podium at some point, and then a like number of people who registered who sometimes come from afar and sometimes come from nearby. So it's a really 
uh, interesting eclectic social mix of people too. The Orphan Film Symposium runs April 10th through 13th at the Museum of the Moving Image in Queens. Links will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Mike Moshan was head of the Moving Image section at the Library of Congress at its National Audiovisual Conservation Center in Culpeper, Virginia, until he retired last June. Although I knew his name, I had never met him until we were introduced to each other at Port None last year, at which point we both had the same idea, that it would be interesting to talk to him about his experiences running that section over the last quarter century a time that saw film preservation turn digital and our idea of access to archival film shift online to a large degree. I spoke with Mike Michon from Austin, Texas, where he lives now. I just read what your title was, but uh, tell me what you, you retired from. I was head of the moving image section at the Library of Congress. Okay. So in the hierarchy of things, where does that? So there is the, the National Audiovisual Conservation Center, uh, which is uh, where, you know, all of that moving image and recorded sound of the library is located under that. And we have a, a moving image section, a recorded sound section, and then the preservation laboratories film, video, and audio. So there were sort of in sort of five major sections, and I was the head of one of them. Okay. So, yeah, tell me how you got – how did you get to the Library of Congress? What was your background? Well, first, Mike, thanks for uh, inviting me on. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> um, I uh, actually started my professional life as a microbiologist, uh, <laughs> undergraduate degree in microbiology from Louisiana State University, then went over to do the same at the University of Texas. And in the mid-1980s, I got my first professional job uh, doing AIDS testing uh, for the state of Texas. And it was, a, it was an interesting job, but it was also a very uh, depressing uh, and stressful job just because of the high mortality rate sure. uh, for uh, HIV at the time. But, you know, I'd always been a, a, a film guy. I was a member of the Texas Union Film Committee and a member in the Austin Film Society. And so I started thinking, well, I, yeah, I don't think I want to be an immunologist for the rest of my life. So how can I get paid for talking about movies and, and TV? So um, I uh, sort of talked to uh, the grad school in the radio, television, film department uh, at the University of Texas. And uh, my uh, boss at the Department of Health allowed me to make up work on the weekend so I could take classes and Professor, I went to go meet with a professor there, and he said, come audit my class. And if you do well in that class, I will recommend you for admission to the master's program. 
And Dan Strebel and his roommate, Eric Schaefer, were in that class and they took me under their wing and made sure that I didn't freak out. And <laughs> since then, 1987, Dan and I have been best friends. Um, so uh, I got my master's uh, from uh, Texas. Uh, and then uh, in 1990, uh, my wife and I, we got married somewhere in there, uh, uh, went to uh, Maryland. So I went to the University of Maryland uh, to get my PhD uh, in radio, television, and film, thinking that I was going to be an academic. I, I really you know, was more of a historian uh, than anything else. And I thought that uh, that's what I would do. But I had uh, gotten this uh, uh, job. I started doing research in a small collection of broadcast history in downtown Washington called the Broadcast Pioneers Library as I was writing my uh, dissertation. And just about the time that I was finishing the dissertation, the lady who ran the library retired and they relocated the, the entire research collection from downtown Washington to the University of Maryland, and they needed a curator. Uh, and my uh, my entire job interview was uh, the chairman of the board of the library saying, would you like to be the next curator? And he said, <laughs> yes. And that was the end of it. So I you know, wound up being curator of the then renamed the Library of American Broadcasting. Uh, and I did that for four years. And then in 1998, I was hired as the moving image curator at the Library of Congress, and then in 2005 became the head of the moving image section. So I very frequently refer to myself as an accidental archivist, and I, and I really was. I did not have any archival training. I was a subject matter specialist. So. Uh, I really had to learn things uh, on the on the job. You know, this is not that long ago, but the world still has changed quite a bit since then. One thing being how much digital technology has come into it. So, yeah, what was the world like when you started there? Yeah, in 1998. I mean, for example, I mean, we were, the library had gotten into digital pretty early on, at least in terms of making some of the collection available. Uh, online um, digitally. Uh, and I had always really been interested in that. Uh, the Library of American Broadcasting was actually the first special collection website that was ever set up at the University of Maryland, like in the mid 90s. We were way on top of that. Um, but the laboratory, the film laboratory at the time was located in Dayton, Ohio, and it was strictly photochemical. Uh, so no no digital there. Uh, down in the audio lab and the in the video lab, uh, we were uh, transferring everything to new physical media. So if you're going to preserve a videotape, you're transferring it to a new videotape. Uh, so that has really was sort of the biggest change that I saw from you know 1998 to 2023 was the just the evolution of digital and, uh, you know, other ways of making our collections more accessible. It, it was really quite a change. Tell me more about that. I mean, what was the learning curve to using, you know, to seeing digital as an end product? You know, like a lot of people, I personally had to make the journey from film forever, you know, to embracing digital. 
but it was perhaps a, a little easier for me because, well, I'm going to confess my sins. Please forgive me, <laughs> Nitrate Phil. But I've, I've never been a film fetishist. I, I say that with love in my heart because I'm very, very grateful to the people I work with who were, you know, really attached to film and love film. And I say that with a lot of sincere love. But for me, you know, digital was was very exciting. And I was sort of impatient uh, for it uh, in a lot of ways, because I really felt like the evolution of our robust digital workflows opened up our ability to preserve a much wider range of material uh, in the collection. But it was not without its, you know, wrenching, uh, you know, experiences. You know, and when I came to the library in 1998, plans were already underway for the um, uh, construction of the, what became the Packard Campus for Audiovisual Conservation in Culpeper, Virginia. So when I arrived in February of 1998, I knew my job was going to uh, transfer to Culpeper uh, at some point from, from Washington, D.C. So I was involved in a lot of the planning uh, for Culpeper, and it was going to have this very substantial digital uh, infrastructure for it. So I learned a lot uh, during those years. And then when the building finally opened in uh, 2007, I was really one of the very first people uh, to be uh, in that building, so it was, it was, it was a the, the years leading up to Culpeper, particularly 2005 to 2007, were were incredibly stressful because we were moving our collections from four states in the District of Columbia to this one facility in Culpeper, and did that with. Uh, a handful of our, you know, employees. And I mean, we had a moving company that was doing all of that, but we were responsible for a lot of the planning. And uh, so there were many uh, late nights, sleepless nights uh, in, uh, in working on that. Uh, but uh, we all knew that when the, when the facility opened, it was going to be a little bit of a wonderland. Uh, and it really has turned out to be that. I uh, I miss uh, I miss the people and I miss all that technology that we have around there. A lot of people may not know the backstory on the the uh, Packard Center. You know, I've been there, so I know it kind of has this look like it's out of Planet of the Apes or something. Uh, mm. You know, this modernist building that's sort of mm-hmm. taken over by. Uh, uh, ivy or I don't know whatever it is that, that grows on the outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of it. ivy. It was originally built for something else. Tell me about that. So this all got started in the in the mid 1990s when my former chief David Francis, who had been at the British Film Institute and was really responsible for the facility that they had in suburban London in a town called Berkhamsted, started talking with one of our major benefactors, David Woodley Packard about creating a similar facility for the library. So, you know, there was some thought, do we build it from scratch somewhere? Do we look for, you know, existing building or land? And as it turns out, there was a facility for sale in Culpeper that used to belong to the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, Virginia. So this is a building that opened in 69 and then it got decommissioned in 1993. 
But at its peak, it was a real Cold War facility. At its peak, it stored $3 billion in coin and currency <laughs> there that was going to be used to restart the U.S. economy east of the Mississippi in the event of a nuclear holocaust. <laughs> uh, so 93, the building closes down. The money is moved somewhere. We, we looked. No money left. <laughs> Uh, and the building and the building the building goes up for sale and and, and so the the way it is today the old federal reserve we've just replaced one treasure with another yeah. so that's where we store the safety film videotape and sound recordings uh of the library then we have a, another building the conservation building and that's where the moving image section, recorded sound section, and the people who work there are in there. And on the third floor of that building is where we have our preservation uh, laboratories, one for audio, one for video, one for film. We also have a data center uh, that's on the second uh, floor with uh, many, many petabytes of uh, digital information in there. And then we have to get a third wing that was new construction. That's where our 140,000 plus cans of nitrate are stored. And you will forgive me throughout this interview. I will always talk like I still work at the library. Right. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was interesting. You know, Larry Smith gave me a tour around at one time. The effort to preserve currency, you know, against fire uh, turned out to be well set up for preserving film. I mean, they're both sort of on. I don't know, what were they, like concrete slab shelves that, you know, mm -hmm. if something mm -hmm. happened on one shelf, it wouldn't spread to the next. And I'm yeah, sure our, our, our nitrate, yeah, our nitrate vaults uh, have a very uh, unique construction, which we share with the Phi uh, Stoa, that, that where UCLA uh, has their nitrate out in Santa Clarita, California. So there are 124 individual vaults there, and it's slotted shelving, and the shelves are filled with concrete, and there's only two cans per shelf. And, you know, the operating theory being that if a fire broke out, uh, you know, in, in a vault, you, you wouldn't – and there's actually water sprinklers in there that would release water many, many gallons per minute – uh, that would uh, contain the fire within these like concrete encased cubby holes. Yeah. Now the library has never lost a foot of uh, nitrate to uh, to fire, and uh, we're not planning to start now. Right. <laughs> yeah. But it's been known to happen. So it uh, has been known to happen. There is no doubt about it. All right. So yeah, I mean you were or the the lab was making prints of things and that was preservation and then it became doing it digitally tell me about that transformation sure um so <clears throat> it, we really didn't uh start doing more uh digital preservation until um uh, you know, the move to Culpeper and really sort of began in, in earnest in the early uh, 2010s. I mean, the the building opened up in 2007, but it still took a few more years to transport all of the nitrate uh, from uh, from Dayton uh, to Culpeper. And then we were building out the lab. They really, we just didn't have a whole lot of people in that building until 2009 and 2010. So photochemical preservation, I mean, is, is a, um, 
I mean, it's a, a well-worn, well-worn, it's a well-known technique. I mean, the, the, the laboratory, when I used to give a tour of the, uh, of the labs, uh, I would talk, I would always uh, stop by uh, the, the cubicle or the workstation where uh, somebody was repairing a film or repairing splices, doing these sprocket holes. And, you know, I would talk about how, you know, what a wonderful place this is with, with you know, old world handcrafted techniques that were more than a century old. And now let's go over and look at the scanner. You know, because we we would we had both of those things basically uh, sitting side by side. But you know, another important thing to remember is um, uh, photochemical preservation. You know, involves it involves chemicals. Some of them are carcinogenic. Uh, you have to get uh, wastewater permitting. You have to get air permits. You really have got uh, to do a tremendous amount of work on environmental impact. Uh, all of these things take time and they take some expense. Uh, but, you know, the library doesn't want to move away from photochemical preservation until, you know, it absolutely has to. Um, but certainly uh, film stock is harder to get uh, these days. We are a very, very large consumer of black and white uh, film stock. Uh, but we've, uh, you know, we have plenty of people there who know how to do that work. We have a staff chemist. And we're, you know, going to continue to to preserve things on film, but we're a lot more selective about it now. So sometimes there might be a title that we are going to preserve all the way out to a print. So we're going to do all the pre-print that we need to on it, and we're going to make a 35 millimeter print. Those are typically going to be titles that we think have some sort of exhibition potential. There may be other times when we just do the preprint. We, you know, might do, you know, if we have a nitrate negative, uh, we might, uh, you know, preserve the track, we preserve the picture, but then we're going to scan it uh, after that and scan that nitrate. Uh, and, and the digital file uh, is going to be the access copy, but at least the film itself has been preserved. Uh, on safety. And then there are going to be other things. In fact, most of the things that we have in the collection there, we're going to scan it, and that's the end of it. I know some of that stuff will end up, people like Ben Modell or Ed LaRusso will be interested in, uh, you know, releasing sort of homebrew releases of some of these titles. But yeah, otherwise, what mm -hmm. uh, what happens with them? I mean, I know one of the things I really liked about Cinesation back in the day, the festival in Massillon, Ohio, was that James Cozart would just kind of show up with a with a piece of luggage full of films and, you know, here's what we've been working on lately or, you know, that sort of thing. And, and that's where you'd get to see them and that would kind of be it. You know, that would be the one showing some of these things would get. I miss James so much. You know, they're unforgettable people in your career. I, you know, and I say this, of course, with a lot of love in my heart. I, I miss James a lot. There were days when I just wanted to kill him. <laughs> you know? And because he, but I just, but there were so many days, you know, it's one of those things sometimes you don't know what you got till it's gone. Right. I can't tell you how many times after James passed that things would come up and I would just be like, I really, you know, I'm going to have to do research on this now. I don't want to do this research. <laughs> Why can't I just call James? Cause James will know it off the top of his head. Right. I, you know, 
And that was one of the really one of the glories of working at the library is just being around so many brilliant people and uh, learning so much from them. Because, you know, quite honestly, Mike, I'm, you know, I never have minded admitting this. I mean, you, I look at the guest list for the, you know, podcast and the people that I've heard you know, on this show, and you've got historians and authors and collectors and restorationists and musicians and, you know, on and on. But, you know, I'm, okay, so I'm here to represent the, you know, a mid-level film and video adjacent bureaucrat. Right. We paper pushers, we need love. <laughs> and there's some, th- there's some things that I know really well, but I could not preserve a film if you threatened me <laughs> and digital restoration still seems like magic to me. And I'm just thankful for my colleagues who are more technically skilled uh, than, than I am. But, you know, I was never real. I was really never comfortable being a supervisor uh, because, you know, who was I to be bossing around such exceptionally talented people but what I was good at was creating a supportive atmosphere and finding resources that allowed those exceptionally talented people the space to do their thing. And I was, I was really proud of it. And in these DVDs that you're talking about, um, you know, it's a really good uh, example of that. Uh, I'm, uh, if there's a through line for anything that I really uh, enjoyed more than anything else during my career it was access initiatives. And that is, uh, is definitely uh, one of them. We had these great physical media partnerships. Uh, you talked about Ed and, and Ben Modell. I, I think Ben is a resident of uh, Nitrateville. He's yeah, been on yeah, so much. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and those are great. And we've got this co-branded uh, relationship uh, with uh, uh, two with Kino Lorber and had, had some significant sets devoted to African-American pioneers and early film directors. And, uh, you know, we would have been co-branded on last year's Nasty Women set if the library hadn't had cold feet over the title. And I know that you had the Nasty Women on a, right. on a, a previous episode. I'm really, really proud of those partnerships and uh, in the ways that they have genuinely changed film history and our approach to that. And I also have, I will give a lot of credit to the moving image curator, Rob Stone, who established that program. Cause I, I'm also, here's also confessing my unpopular opinion. I'm really not much of a physical media guy. Um, and I, I was quite frankly skeptical initially about the about the DVD program, but I was wrong, <laughs> and uh, happily wrong. And I'm really grateful to Rob for all the work that he put in on that. Well, yeah. Tell me, tell me other ways that you've you've gotten things out that you you mentioned film loans and the National mm-hmm. Screening Room. Tell me about those kind of things. Yeah, sure. So. Um, when I started in 1998, I ran the film loan program. It was all 35 at that time. And honestly, that I, I love doing that. And as a side benefit, I made friends all over the world. And I also restarted our little 64-seat uh, Mary Pickford Theater, which had been dark for a while when I came in. 
And then uh, later I started our blog uh, called Now See Here, uh, which is still going strong. And with another colleague, stood up a Twitter feed. So I've just always been really interested in, in getting the word out about what we do. But nearest and dearest to my heart was this National Screening Room, uh, which is our online portal for digitized films. And it started in uh, 2018. There are about 600 titles on there now. Most of them are downloadable in uh, a high-res format, ProRes uh, LT. So you free use, do whatever you want with them. And there are hundreds of titles more in the queue. And that includes things like race films and newly public domain titles and films that we think can be made available under the provisions of Section 108H of the copyright law. I really hope that my successors can find ways to get past the pinch points that make it a challenge to upload titles more frequently. That was, it's really kind of nobody's fault, but it was, it was genuinely one of the, my great frustrations is that we couldn't get things put online uh, quicker than we we do. I explored other options, and they just kind of never went anywhere. But we have we have thousands and thousands and thousands of titles in the collection that are free and clear, or we can get permission to put them online and downloadable. That's really important to make high res versions available for download, so people can use them however they they want. So what what were the things blocking the way of things being put up? Well, some of it is just, again, nobody's fault. I want hasten to add that. You know, look, we, we were one of a multitude of supplicants to the web services uh, team uh, at, the, at the library, and they're great people. I loved working with them because, I, you know, I just came to them in like 2017 and, you know, basically said, hey, you know, how can we make this happen? And back on the Packard campus, hey, colleagues who were coming up with these like really terrific workflows to automatically put bumpers, uh, you know, on on these files. I had people like George Williman, who is a nitrate vault manager, who was teaching himself how to, you know, digitally restore films. And he was doing a lot of editing and things like that. So we were, we were able to, you know, get this workflow together. But again, you know, we're in line with the Abraham Lincoln papers. Right. Or, you know, it's like we got all these like presidential papers. We got Ro- Rosa Parks papers, Farm Security Administration photographs, the, you know, maps. And, you know, all, the library's collection is enormous. And also, the, but the, and the library is making, putting a lot of effort into getting as much of that material online as possible. So who am I to say, well, no, I really got all these, you know, educational films that I want to put online. So can we, you know, bump uh, the uh, Chester A. Arthur paper <laughs> to the back? Well, you know, okay, that one maybe. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, I, I totally get it. And the people that I worked with in web services were an absolute delight. Now, the other, the other thing, though, is it did require us, through the library's workflow, to more fully catalog each of those titles. And I understand that. 
as well. I mean, I real the real surprise to me how much I got into cataloging during my time uh, at the library. But I, I think of it in terms of how do you make this material more discoverable? I mean, it's one thing just to pluck a title online that in with minimal amount of information, but it's if you can catalog it and uh, give people multiple points of entry into being able to find that title. Well, that that's good too. But the library's workflow required us to have a lot, you know, full level cataloging. And when we had a cataloging staff that had been kind of depleted, uh, you know, and a lot of other work those people needed to be doing. Um, you know, it was just a matter of balancing out resources. Now, I think I think a lot of that is going to change. Uh, I think there are going to be uh, other ways, perhaps using artificial intelligence, uh, to uh, be able to catalog uh, more material. Uh, so we'll, you know, we'll see. I'm, I'm very excited for what's going to happen, even if I barely understand it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about, uh, I don't know, so like some some big uh, preservation wins, things things you did that have proven to be pretty significant during your time. Sure. So I, you know, again, I'm going to stress that I have never preserved a film myself. Sure. I'm always, I love hearing stories from the people that, that are, that are, have been on uh, Nitrateville to talk about the projects that they've worked on and how they've done it. And it, like, it just still does Thing like magic to me, but uh, there have been a you know a hint. Look, I've helped create a if I can use the phrase permission structure sure. uh, for a lot of these preservation projects to go forward, and ones that I've recommended. But you know the one the ones that 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 I love the most uh, is uh, you know Babyface would be the number one one for, with which. You know, I've been associated. So this is the 1933 Barbara Stanwyck uh, pre-code film, uh, which was already a very notorious film. You know, she is a bootlegger's daughter who sleeps her way to the top of a banking empire. And in the early 2000s, uh, I wanted to uh, get a new print of Babyface that we could loan to the London Film Festival. So I called uh, George Williman, who uh, at the time still was out there in Dayton, and I said, hey, George, could you just pull this? We had the original camera negative of, of Babyface. Could you could you pull it uh, because, you know, I want and just check it out because I want to send it up to the lab and get a 35 millimeter print. And you know, after a while, George called me back and said, we have another element which we had cataloged is basically coming from the camera negative. And it looks to be a little longer, like looks to be, that's how brilliant George is. Uh, and, uh, and as it turned out, this uh, element that George was talking about, we had preserved it uh, back in the 1970s. We had just run off a quick fine grain, composite fine grain. Of it. And that was something uh, that I could watch. So I pulled it in from storage with safety. So I pulled that one in from, from storage so I could watch it on a flatbed in DC. And I knew within the first five minutes that I was looking at a 
pre-censored, uncut, original version of Babyface. Yeah, I knew that that existed, but everybody assumed uh, that it was lost. So that was really, truly one of my top five most exciting days at the library to run across this uncensored version of Babyface. And so we obviously we preserved that one. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that, that has played all over the world. It's probably our most popular loan title. Right. <laughs> we have multiple prints of it. It's just never out of circulation. And so when you watch it on TCN now, that's all they show is the, uh, the, the pre-cut version of, uh, of baby face. Um, but the uh, literally the first person I let know about that was Bruce Goldstein at Film Forum because he's such a pre-code maven, and we sure. had the uh, U.S. premiere of Babyface at uh, Film Forum. So I'll always be uh, I'll always be very fond of that and grateful to George because really, if it had not been for George, I, I we might have found it eventually. But it was it was great that he could point that out. And then there was an, an, another one that I'm. This is a case when we really needed digital. Uh, uh, there's a film by the uh, couple, uh, James and Alois Gist, who were uh, itinerant uh, preachers. Uh, and uh, they made a film in the early 1930s called Hellbound Train, uh, which is this sort of you know homemade, uh, fantastical allegory uh, you know, which catalogs everybody's sins and, you know, you don't get on the train and you know, get on train and gamble, get on train and, you know, uh, be an alcoholic uh, and, you know, cheat people because you're going to hell. Uh, and it's uh, just the most wonderful wackadoodle uh, film that you'd ever want to see, but it existed in just fragmentary form uh, in uh, 16 millimeter. And we tried in the, you know, early 2000s to do photochemical preservation of that, but it was it was impossible because there were just so many sections of it, and where how did it go together? And it was it was just a mess. But when we were able we were able to digitize it, uh, and then we worked with a scholar named Toriano Berry at Howard University to assemble a version. Uh, of it, and uh, that wound up on the Kino Lorber Pioneers of African American Cinema set. <laughs> it's a fantastic film, it, but but it had to. It that was one that had just had to wait for digital. There was just no way that we could have done that one photochemically, you know. And then and then there've been you know several others as well that I'm you know have been really happy to be uh, involved with. I I will take a tiny, tiny bit of credit uh, for uh, resurrecting uh, my my favorite silent film, I think, is uh, the Marion Davies film, The Patsy. Uh, and uh, I uh, really, when I was a film loan coordinator, I really was pushing that thing. And they showed it uh, in Portanone and at the San Francisco Silent Film Festival. And then that just got picked up by other programmers. So the Patsy stays out there a fair amount. And I like to think that I was a champion uh, of that one. I yield to no one in my love of uh, Hollywood cinema and especially silence. But over time, I've really come to value what Charles Acklin and Heidi Watson call useful cinema. 
a concept that was taken up by Rick Pralinger, who, uh, along with Dan Striebel, who uh, founded the Orphan Film Symposium, Rick and uh, has had really the greatest impact on my thinking about preservation uh, in general. And the library has many, many thousands of these industrial slash educational slash sponsored slash orphan films in its collection. And I quite enthusiastically kept the scan queue fed uh, with them. Uh, and in 2006, the National Film Preservation Foundation published Rick's Field Guide to Sponsored Film, which got 452 titles uh, in it. And more than two-thirds of those were held at the library. So I just started putting those in the queue, and a lot of those films are available in the National Screening Room, and even more of them are available on the uh, NFPS website. And that really was one of my very favorite projects. So over time, I just, it wasn't that I didn't, didn't love Hollywood film anymore. I just got less interested in it over time. It was like my eyes were open to this, you know, other part of cinema, independent cinema too. And I, there were other, there were other people at the library who were going to be keeping an eye on Hollywood and silent, Hollywood silence. And I was going to be the guy who just sort of kept an eye on all the other stuff. And it was one of the it was one of the great privileges of being in my position is I could make the decisions on the things that we were going to be working on. And we not going through and photochemically preserving uh, you know, facts about film, uh, which is, you know, a cute cute little uh educational film from the nineteen forties, but you know, we could scan them. Uh and we've scanned a lot. And when I talk about the films that are available to go online, I'm really talking about a lot of those. So uh, tell me what what was so interesting about them for you? I just saw in this cluster of films, uh, think, you know, movies that have been sort of neglected in popular culture, or even when they had gotten, you know, some sort of currency in culture, it was almost like making, making fun of them, you know, particularly like social hygiene films of the 1950s, dating sure. do's and don'ts and are you popular, which were, I mean, they're great. They're fun to look at in our 2024 eyes. And, you know, we can see the humor in that, but, you know, these are a lot of them were like deadly earnest. And this is, and these, these films are very close to the culture. Uh, and, you know, they're promoting products and ideologies and just telling us so much about who we were as a, a people and consumer culture. And, you know, particularly when you start also getting into orphan films and, you know, things that, you know, the films that don't have any owner and who was going to preserve them. And I always felt one of the great things about working at the Library of Congress, we were wealthy. We got a lot of money compared to other archives. So we could afford board to do those films. We weren't having to go out and get grants right. to do a lot of this work. Now, sometimes for bigger projects, certainly we preserve many, many films with uh, funding from our beloved friends at the Film Foundation and are really, really grateful for all the wonderful work uh, that they've done. 
but a lot of this other stuff, you know, we could just do on our own in a way that other archives could not. I always felt very privileged by that, didn't want to abuse that privilege, but I thought we can use our resources to preserve things that other people just can't. Yeah, so, um, you know, if, if something gets, you know, the fancier uh, film foundation treatment, what what's the decision that leads to that? Is it that they see a commercial outlet for it or...? It's not even so much having a commercial outlet is, you know, then if we're, if we're going to think about pitching uh, a film to uh, the film foundation, I mean, yes, do we want it seen by an audience? You bet. But typically we're going to be, you know, we're looking at titles that have been, you know, maybe there's not a really good photochemical preservation out there. And the film foundation is photochemical. So we're going to, we're going full blown photochemical on all of that. So we're trying to find, you know, films that, you know, you know, really need to be preserved photochemically. Uh, perhaps they've been out of circulation for a long time. We definitely want to find things for which uh, there will be uh, an audience. Uh, one of the last uh, projects that, uh, that I worked on along with uh, Heather Linville, who's the head of our film preservation lab, was a film foundation uh, preservation of a early 70s uh, black exploitation film by Ivan Dixon called The Spook Who Sat by the yes. Door. It is a magnificent film. Uh, and I'm really looking forward uh, to that getting out in uh, in wider circulation. But that you know, those are the those are the kind of things that we'd be working with the Film Foundation on. What's the future hold now that you're <clears throat> you're out of it? What do you what do you think we're going to see more of or less of or could do now that we couldn't do a while back? Well, I'm you know uh, again, I'm really. Uh, hoping I left a lot of things in place for my colleagues at the library, but I, I was very serious when, you know, I, that was when I walked out the door, I said, you are more than welcome to ignore, uh, ignore <laughs> me from now on. Uh, you can, uh, I've always taken the attitude that my job is what I do. It's not who I am. So, you know, I don't worry about terms of legacy. If you just want to, burn down everything that I ever touched and salt the earth and erase my name. Fine. I'm not going to be around. I, you know, whatever. Uh, but, you know, obviously not, not for me. I just think it would be really good if we are able to build out uh, that national uh, screening room. I really believe in that while continuing to, I'd love to see us expand the, the film loan program. We've got some DCPs now that we can start uh, distributing as well. You know, but it's all it, it all takes human capital <laughs> to yeah. do that. And when you have so much that you need to be doing in a wide variety of areas around there, you know, it's just a matter of balancing uh, things out. Uh, you know, I don't know who my successor uh, is going to be, uh, but uh, I envy them because they're going to be working with an incredibly talented uh, group of individuals. And I'm, I'm really excited about the future uh, at the library. I really like the group that we've got there now, and it's only going to continue to get better. And, you know, I hope over time they'll just be 
you know, making more of the collection discoverable and accessible because that's the, that's the reason why we do it in the first place. I mean, you know, it's an this other thing that I saw evolve over time. It felt like when I came to the library in 1998, there was almost a tension between researchers and collectors and the archivists about, you know, accessibility of material. Uh, I credit uh, the Orphan Film Symposium with uh, opening a lot of lines of dialogue between uh, scholars uh, and uh, archivists. Uh, I mean, Orphans has always been sort of a space where those people can, uh, like, talk to each other. I don't feel like there's really any tension now. I think archivists, I think archivists were kind of always unfairly maligned in a lot of areas as people who wanted, like, hold on to their content and never let you see it. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, so I think I, I think that that old trope has sort of died now. And, you know, and I also have to make mention of the collector community uh, out there. Uh, the uh, if it had not been we have so many collections at the library that were carefully curated by people who love this material, who love these films. And if it wasn't for them, so much of that history would be consigned to the dumpster. Uh, and I really uh, grew, uh, my appreciation and love for these people really grew uh, over the years. And I'm really, really thankful for all of the people who have uh, collected uh, films over the years. And there's still plenty more out there and that's going to be one of our great challenges moving forward is is finding space or frankly i know that there are still some big collections out there and you just want to make sure that those can be saved or at least stored somewhere yeah. where they're not going to be endangered until we can get to them so that's 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 a worry uh but um you know hoping hoping that my successors will be able to solve that problem well, yeah, it seems like, uh, you know, there's there's tension between groups when there's scarcity of resources. Uh, and if, exactly. you know, if you got to a point where the uh, preservation people felt like they had the ability to do pretty much the stuff they wanted to do, then there's going to be less tension about it. Well, one thing that we really tried to take into, take into account, Mike, is, you know, we there were just a, there were a handful of people at the library who were sort of responsible for those preservation decisions. I mean, everybody kind of had a, a say in things, but ultimately, there are only going to be a few people who like pull the trigger on this. But we never wanted it to be a you know like a star chamber. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like we're going because because the thing is if we the library only preserve what Mike Michon likes it would be a pretty narrow well I like a little bit of everything but people would genuinely wonder why are they spending so much time on films uh, made in the 1950s about farm equipment right you know, that, <laughs> or mental 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 health films in the 1950s I love those things. So we tried to be as broad and inclusive as possible. And part of that 
too is talking with the community and, you know, we've all got our contacts and people are making recommendations. And, you know, you could post on Nitrateville about, you know, what people would like to see preserved. We really try to take all of that into account because I think we're all aware of the privileged position that we occupy uh, at the library. I think that that spirit uh, is, no, I know that that spirit is uh, going to uh, continue because it, it would just be foolish not to listen to all of the people out there who know more than we do and, you know, can advocate very forcefully for for for, for films that they love. There's it, it's it can be despairing sometimes to think about all of the films sure. that need to be saved uh, out there. But all you can do is just keep working on it. I'm really, I'm really happy to, I'm really happy to be, be talking with you. I've, I've loved the podcast for a long time. And I, I think just about every show, I know at least one person right, right. that you <laughs> talk to, especially since every, so many of them include Ben. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It just reminds me what a great community this is because everybody's so happy. Yeah. You listen to the podcast. Everybody's like really joyful and they love talking about this stuff. And I just, I don't know. It makes me happy. Thanks to my guests, Dan Striebel and Mike Michon. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening, and if you have a chance, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts.